if you see a contract that has that in it, you're looking at a document that's probably 20 years old. Those things should stick out. If you feel like you're in a British play reading your lease agreement, there may be other things that are very old involved with that property as well. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 149 with Jody Gable. Contracts, evictions, housing law. These topics might make your eyes glaze over, but they are becoming big issues for the tiny house movement. My guest today is Jody Gable, a trial attorney with 25 years of experience in mobile home park law, RV tenancies, landlord tenant and housing law, and local government issues. On the show, we'll explore the challenges and solutions facing tiny house dwellers, landlords, and communities. I learned a lot, and I know you will too, so I hope you stick around. Did you know that I personally send a tiny house newsletter every week on Tuesdays? It's called Tiny Tuesdays, and it's a weekly email with tiny house news, interviews, photos, and resources. It's free to subscribe, and I even share sneak peeks of things that are coming up, ask for feedback about upcoming podcast guests, and more. It's really the best place to keep a pulse on what I'm doing in the tiny house space and also stay informed about what's going on in the tiny house movement. To sign up, go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter. I'll never send you spam, and if you don't want to receive emails, it's easy to unsubscribe. I hope you enjoy next week's Tiny Tuesdays newsletter. Go to thetinyhouse.net slash newsletter to subscribe. All right, I am here with Jody Gable. Jody Gable is a trial attorney with a statewide practice in the areas of mobile home park law, RV tenancies, landlord tenant and housing law, and local government issues for 25 years. She supervises a team specializing in matters involving federal and state fair housing laws, ADA compliance, evictions, collections, abandonment, lien holder matter. Oh man, I'm going to replevins of mobile homes, <laughs> recreational vehicles, and shares in resident owned communities. Jody has been counsel in thousands of cases involving these topics and has appeared before more than 100 county court judges throughout the state of Florida in trials and appeals. Jody Gable, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me. You're, you're so very welcome. And I've I've been I've been searching for someone just like you. So thank you for existing and for being willing to to come on the show. Um we had uh we had an interview a couple of weeks ago with a reporter, um, Frank Alito, that got a lot of responses. He's been writing about kind of some troubling trends in the tiny house industry of of people kind of getting ripped off by their builders. Um, and so I'm really happy to, to talk with somebody with a legal background in this area. Sure. I was just, it, hope- or oh, go ahead. I was going to say, um, it's, it's something that's becoming more of a trend lately. I, I, I think it's from kind of misunderstandings from both sides of the equation. So it's great that there's going to be some teaching, you know, and, and kind of points to, for both sides to recognize, you know, before things start to go afoul. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that, that I'm not, uh, I don't have occasion to, to enter into too many contracts these days, but what I've learned over time is that the contract is, is helpful for both sides. It, you know, it helps to create expectations for both sides, but, but I was hoping we could just start with like, 
are there parallels between what you're seeing in the tiny house industry and what you've already seen in the RV and manufactured home industry over the last 25 years? It's funny. When when I started in in law in particular, it was God, 1994. And back in 1994, no one wanted a mobile home park near their site-built house. Very much like what's going on now with the tiny house movement for people who want to be on land, whether it be a friend's land or even to establish a community, a lot of the residential areas do not want that quote unquote campground RV um, type situation near them. So it's sort of history repeating itself on a smaller scale. And the thing that I think, um, you know, being, being a trial attorney and being in just this wide practice of landlord tenant law, there's so many small things that turn into big obstacles that had people known about them in the beginning, they could have avoided so much time and money and angst and effort. So that's what I think I can bring to the, this movement is a lot of the community-based experience, plus how there tends to be a little bit of snobbery to any new smaller-sized housing from local governments. And they promote it, but at the same time, they only promote it where they want it to go. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you can be behind the school, but you can't be near the big site-built houses because that's not where tiny house, you know, lots should be located, that type of thing. So I'm seeing a lot of parallels. And to a certain extent, some of the tiny house people in the movement don't want to see those parallels. I'm not saying anything that's happened in the mobile home industry or the RV industry is what's going to happen with the tiny house movement. I think it's a whole different situation and the timing is critical with what's going on with the COVID pandemic. But to ignore what's happened in those other types of housing situations, I think is is just a big mistake. It's an opportunity not to repeat things that cost people a lot of money. What are some of those mistakes that that end up costing people a lot of money that that you've seen that you could say, you know, we need to learn from this in the tiny house movement? A lot of times people will try to move their tiny house into a community um, without being specific about the size, the nature, the, the transient aspect about their tiny home. They may enter into a contract with the community, and in that contract, there may be default provisions where, unbeknownst to the person who owns the the unit, they become bound to pay first, last, and security deposit, forfeit all that money should they have, you know, normal life takeover and they have a situation where they have to, you know, vacate the property. So looking at all the documents making sure any place that you decide to stay, if you have a verbal agreement, you are, you are just at the, the whim of the landowner. So, you know, having things in writing and making sure that your expectations are known by, other, by the other party, whether it be a landlord, landowner, or a builder. You know, everybody has their idea of how things should happen But if you don't have it in writing, nobody really knows for sure what the other person's thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And and it sounds like 
you you really do have to read the contract. You have to read the lease and understand what's in there. We all are so used to, you know, on our phones, you know, privacy policy, I accept. Yeah, yeah. But sounds like you're saying don't do that when you're when you're signing a lease for uh, a parking spot or you're signing a contract to to ha- buy or build a tiny house. I think some of the things to look for if the contract is 20 pages long, it's probably not a good idea unless that lawyer really had a lot of money on hand to, to build that client to make the document. It doesn't take a whole lot of space to get the terms that are necessary for you to rent a space, reserve a space, or you know, uh, enter into a long-term agreement. It's reading what's there that's the most important thing and just reading it not reading it and putting your own spin on it. That's what, that's what everybody's common mistake is. Mm-hmm. I want to live here. I'm not going to see anything negative in these documents. You sign something that says, yes, I read it. I agree to everything. And then six months later, if, if there's a provision that's not in your favor, you say, I, I never read that. I didn't see that in that agreement. I think that's different. It's just, you were in love with the spot. You wanted to stay there. So you just kind of snuffed through it and didn't really pay attention to it. You know, it's just being aware of what you're doing, reading the consequences if there's a problem, and just doing that, making yourself focus and, and then go enter the site and have a great time. What would you say to someone who would say, well, you know, I don't understand. I don't speak lawyer. I don't I don't really get all the legalese that are in these contracts. I'm not even going to understand it if I do read it. Um, Most of the leases that I deal with are, I'd say they are slightly complicated, but if you read them, you should be able to get the gist of what's going on. That that Edwardian uh, King's English garbage in contracts went away a long time ago. If you see a contract that has that in it, you're looking at a document that's probably 20 years old. So, you know, those things should stick out. If you feel like you're in, uh, you know, a British play reading your lease agreement, there may be other things that are very old involved with that property as well. So normally, if you read a lease, you should be able to get the concept. And if you don't understand something, you have you absolutely should ask whoever you're dealing with to enter into the contract. What what does this mean? Can you give me an example? A lot of people are are uncomfortable admitting they don't understand, and that's the big easiest thing you can do for yourself is say, "I don't know. I don't know what this means." You know, like replevin. What does that mean? Why why is that word even here? I don't even know what that is, and if they can't explain it to you, then, you know, that's, that's another red flag. What is replevin? <laughs> that's where uh, if you stay on a property and you leave your items there, I would be able to detain those items and um, recover not only my lot, but what's on that lot through legal action. And, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that, but it's a way to kind of if you put your things on my lot, I can retain them and then possibly sell them for value. Okay. Wow. So what are some things, what are some specific things maybe that you've seen in leases 
or, you know, renting a spot in a community or a parking spot that are kind of red flags that you can share with our listeners who are maybe, maybe there are people listening who are looking at a lease right now. Um, what are some things that you are like, you know, be, be cautious of some specifics? You would always want to look at what the conditions are to terminate the lease. If the, if there is language that it's terminable, they call it at will, meaning it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. If the landlord decides for any reason they don't want you on that site, they can give you so many days notice and you have no choice but to leave. And there would be, you know, a sheriff escorting you off the property. And I guess I should say what I always say, you know, I'm licensed to do business as a Florida lawyer. So when I answer questions, I'm trying to answer in generalities, not to give legal advice, but from my experience, I can give a little bit of a template to people just, uh, you know, especially with um, building contracts. You know, I did that during the global uh, THEA conference. You know, there's so many things that you can do regardless of whether you're in the United States or Portugal just to watch out for yourself. And it's not that it's a legal requirement or legally sufficient for where you are. It's just common sense, you know. So I always like to say that at some point during the interview. Excellent. Yes. Uh, so this this interview is not legal advice, but we're here to learn. <laughs> um, so on the flip side of that coin, I, I wonder what your advice is for not not necessarily like a developer or somebody who's setting up a tiny house community, but but somebody who just has space in their yard who does want to who wants to to invite somebody to live there in a tiny house, but they they also want to be protected and and want to not have a bad experience. You know, what advice do you have there? It's it's sort of um, like like any relationship where you have people residing together, there has to be a list of do's and don'ts. It's just like, I always look at it like when I was a teenager, I had a long list of don'ts. And yeah, you know, you're going to pay your rent on time. You're going to, you know, uh, you know, follow the, the normal etiquette, you know, try not to have the band playing at 2 a.m., uh, you know, don't be driving your car at 50 miles an hour into the backyard where your unit is, you know, just have some basic ground rules. There should be some type of ground rule about payment. If, if, if it's, if it's a, a payment situation or a service for lodging, you know, some people will do maintenance and errands and things like that to be able to have their unit in somebody else's backyard, for example. It, it just should be spelled out so that no one can can claim I had no idea I wasn't supposed to do that or I had no idea I was supposed to, you know, pay by the 5th or, you know, I was late by the 15th. And it's really, honestly, it's common sense. But when people are moving into somebody else's backyard, like with an ADU, it's not going to be a situation where you're thinking clearly. It's going to be desperation mostly. And with COVID and the pandemic and ultimately the evictions that will be happening throughout the United States, people aren't going to have a whole lot of time, you know, to prepare for that coexistence in somebody's backyard or in a tiny house village, whether it's public or private. 
So that's when you really need is, and sometimes it's good just to have a buddy with you. If it's you who's emotionally having to give up your home to move to somebody's backyard in a small unit, have a buddy with you to, to be able to help you listen and pay attention to the details. Cause that's when you miss a lot when you're emotionally invested in the situation and you have to get out and move in someplace else. It's just hard, hard to hold on to all the detail. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, or I, I can't imagine how stressful it would be to, you know, be evicted, be looking for a new place to live, and then also need to actually take the time to read the lease and like actually scrutinize it when you're in yeah. a situation where you're kind of in, in real need of housing. True. True. So is it reasonable, you know, when you're, you know, I guess you could say negotiating with someone over a contract, you know, is it reasonable to ask them to change something in the contract? I think um, if, if, if there's something, um, say, uh, say the way, the way you're paid at work, um, you only get paid once a month and they have a 30 day termination clause. and you wouldn't be able to get another paycheck in, say, if they terminated you. You want to make sure that you would be able to at least have a paycheck to move on. And you could say, would you be able to extend that, in my case, to 45 days? I understand I have to get out, but if you give me 45 days, I'll have a paycheck in hand and I'll be able to then have something with me, you know, something to help me with the transition. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions to rules in communities by federal law, you know, for the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, service animals, you know, all those types of things. So if, if you know, you have a service animal and you, you have a small unit, you want to go to either an RV place or any kind of plate, you know, site where it's no pets that can be an exception. You would be saying to them, I need to have this animal with me. It performs a function for me, whether it be emotional or true service. And that landlord or that leasing company would have to make the exception for you. So those are a couple examples of where if there's a hard and fast rule, you could ask for the exception. And in the matter of a service animal or a caregiver who's underage, you have entitlement to those exceptions by state and federal law. Got it. Yeah. Speaking of exceptions, you know, like here where I live in Burlington, Vermont and Vermont in general has a number of laws about leases and tenancy that kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, like in Burlington, a landlord is not allowed to charge a higher rent for a pet. They can take a pet deposit, but they can't charge a different rent for a pet. So like, do those laws, if, if, if somebody does find themselves in a contract that is actually against the state law, which, which takes precedence, like the contract that they signed or the, the law in the state that says, well, you can't have a lease that makes somebody do X, Y, or Z? That's one of those situations where, um, and I think in most states in the United States, there's usually a lawyer referral number, an 800 number that you can call. And if there may be a nominal charge, but if, if you have a situation like that, where, you know, you Google the laws in Burlington and it says one thing and you look at your lease and it says something else, 
you, I would also Google lawyer referral service because my firm's a member of that. And it's, it's kind of like a pro bono service. That would be a perfect question to pose to somebody in, in one of those referral services to say, you know, I'm a tenant. The law says this, this that I see. I'm being charged something different. And then, you know, landlords are held to, you know, comply with the laws just like tenants are. So, you know, there are ways where you can challenge that short of, you know, a whole big lawsuit, you know, by getting some of that legal advice for free. Got it. Do you offer or or have a recommendation of where people can find like sample contracts? Like say they're you know, going to go live in their tiny house in someone's backyard and the person's like, oh, I, I don't really have a contract. You know, can you bring me one? Is, are there, do these exist out there and is there a good source for them? I haven't, I don't know of one particular source, but usually in any jurisdiction, if you go online and put in sample landlord tenant lease, yeah, you'll get a whole bunch. And it's usually from law firms that are landlord tenant lawyers. And you would be able to at least get an idea of basic terms. And it's usually start date, how much you're going to pay, what the, the basis for termination is, and if there's a security deposit. And, you know, you would be able to just look at that framework. And it doesn't really have to be much more complicated than that. So, you know, I hate to say Google is a source, but if you Google that type landlord tenant lease or sample lease and it comes up with a law firm, at least that's a little more reliable situation than the way you used to do it. Go to the library, find something that said leases and, you know, pull out some antiquated, <laughs> you know, party of the first part, party of the second part document. You know, it's a lot more available and accessible online now. Great. So I also want to get into, because we've been talking a lot about communities and, and kind of leases and where you're living, but the other big topic is around, you know, entering into a contract to have a tiny home built for you. Yeah. And I'm curious, what are some of the issues that you've seen in, in that realm? Um. Probably the best way to tackle that is not having payments in sync with um, like uh, what the builder's doing as far as the build. So, you know, like giving 50% down and 50% at the end without any steps in the middle to like, for example, um, you know, a certain, certain percentage or a certain amount when the, you get the floor plan a certain percentage, you know, when the walls are up, when the electrical goes in, when the plumbing goes in, so that it's not just one chunk of payment and you pray everything gets done until you make the second payment. You want to stair-step that so that you get proof of what's happening with the first payment, the second payment, the third payment. And the critical factor is there are a lot of people who don't even know what their electrical plan is in their house or the plumbing layout. So that if they have problems with those types of those parts of the of the house, the the contractor or the repair person that comes in, they literally have to take the house apart to figure out where the electrical system is 
or where where the the junction boxes are that are maybe the cause of the problem. So you definitely want to have the payments timed so that you're getting what you need as the owner uh, to, to show that that work has been done. And there are certification companies out there that can do that, but you want to hold them to the same requirement. You know, they are certification companies, but you should be getting proof of inspections, you know, all along through that process, not just you get the certificate at the end that the home meets all the requirements to be roadworthy and all of that. All certification companies do things, you know, in a timely fashion through the build. So you want to make sure that you're timing your payments with them as well with production of what, you know, proof of what they've done through their certification process. So it sounds like it's not a great idea to, to pay a deposit up front and then the balance when the house is done. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think most people now, unless, unless it's time and distance, it, you know, a lot of people contract for their build in another state and they don't see it, but you know, but that's what videos for every iPhone has some kind of video component. And, you know, there's a way for, for you and the builder to come to an agreement. Like I want to see, you know, what's going on and it doesn't have to be 25 payments, but it should definitely be more than one big hunk. And then the, the big chunk at the end, you know, you just want to make sure that you protect yourself. And a lot of people, you know, you're building this home that's going to be an alternate lifestyle for some, or it may be the only home that they're capable of having. It's, it's a dream and it's everything you own. So it's, it, it couldn't be there. I don't know many things that are more important than that. So you want to make sure you protect yourself because if all that money goes for naught, you know, there you are. And and there there are very many really sad stories, you know, sad, sad, you know, situations that people have found themselves in. Now, with that said, builders on the same same scale, a lot of people who want to build a tiny house have unreasonable expectations about what it's going to look like, how long it's going to take. And right now, materials are a critical issue, too. If the build is involves lumber and not some of the newer materials with the higher R factors, lumber's in very short supply, or at least it's the demand is so high that it's that it's very very expensive. So that's something that people in 2021 may want to protect. That if they're coming in at a certain price for their build, that stays protected, or the builder may want to say you know, they may have to have a longer timeline if supply cannot be found, if, if, you know, lumber is one of the primary, you know, factors in the build. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't think of things like that when you're building the, when you have the contract to build the house, but factors bigger than you and on a larger scale have impact. And that's where the expectations are really hard sometimes to match up. The builder knows all of that because that's all they do, but the buyer of the home has no concept. They don't work in that medium. They have no idea what's going on, you know, with, with delays and things like that. Right. That's, that's so insightful and, and just something that I, I just don't think that most people even think about 
hopefully the builders are thinking about it. And if they're not, then yeah. they're, you know, yeah. could deal with a situation where your builder goes belly up. Is there, um, trying to figure out a word, this kind of a maximum amount or maximum percentage that you would feel comfortable advising someone to pay up front, you know, in terms of a deposit for, for a build? I've seen the, the more reasonable ones that I've seen are like 25% in that range, 25 uh-huh. to 30. Um, 50 is pretty steep if it's, you know, this is your one shot at having this house. You know, so I'd just be a little cautious with that. Um, but, you know, I've, I've seen contracts where everything's paid up front. And, you know, it's because of the circumstances or, or what the, the builder's routine practice is. But more and more people are trying to get that, give you, give you a percentage and then confirm that all the work has been done, you know, and, but always moving forward. You know, you never delay the process. It's just they know at this point when the walls are up or this, you know, the plumbing's in, that's another stepping stone, you know, where you're going to be able to do the funding. Right. Today's episode is sponsored by Precision Temp. Let's face it, most tiny house dwellers want their homes to be small, but not uncomfortable. That means reliable, unlimited hot water. Precision Temp's propane-fired hot water heaters reliably provide unlimited hot water, and they're specifically designed with tiny homes in mind. In fact, the NSP 550 model was installed in my own tiny home, And the reason I chose it was because it did not require a large hole in the side of my home like other RV hot water heaters. Instead, it mounts discreetly through the floor of the tiny house and works quietly and reliably. With their patented Very Flame technology, these are the only gas-fired tankless water heaters approved by RVIA and are ANS certified. Features such as cold weather and wind protection, precise electronic temperature control, and onboard diagnostics are standard. With higher efficiency and 55,000 BTUs of power, these units produce far more hot water than traditional water heaters. And since they don't come on unless you want hot water or to protect against freezing, you may find that you use as little as half the propane or natural gas as before. So go ahead and take that long, hot shower. Precision Temp is offering listeners of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast $100 off plus free shipping using the coupon code THLP. Head over to precisiontemp.com and use the coupon code THLP for $100 off any order plus free shipping. That website again is precisiontemp.com, coupon code THLP. Thank you so much to Precision Temp for sponsoring our show. So this is this is great advice in terms of working with a builder. I'm curious how you approach it when a client is, you know, buying a house that's already built. You know, mm-hmm. either it's it's new and you know the builder says this one's ready. You know, here you go. Or it's even a used tiny house. Um Yeah. So you can't necessarily inspect the plumbing and the electrical as they mm-hmm. went in. What 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 advice do you have for that? kind of situation i think you would you'd ask if if they have any of the documentation like we were just discussing do they have the electrical plans do they have the plumbing plans i would say at this point it's probably 60 40 no 
uh, with with the majority of the resale market. Yeah. It, it may be better. It may be better. Then then you get to the functioning questions. Uh, you know, when's the last time you had to pay for any service on the plumbing, the electric, those types of things, if it's in use. Some people do keep a logbook of expenses, what they've had to put into the house. So, you know, very similar to the car. You know, you have the warranty, you have the book with all the times you've had to take it back to the dealer kind of thing. Right. Yeah. If they have nothing, then you'd want to kind of bargain. You'd want to do a little negotiation on price because all you're, you're just taking some, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the complete used car, kick the tires, do what you can to see what functions. And then if you're really good, you start to haggle. Uh, you know, and start to say, you know, I, I have no track record, you know, that kind of thing. Right. I'm taking on a bigger risk here buying this house that I have no idea yeah. what's inside. Yeah. 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 Um, the one thing before, before I forget, um, for new, for any new build contracts right now, the, the CDC has a moratorium right now on evictions. Um, it was extended. It was supposed to expire on the 31st of December, and then it was extended through the 31st of January. And although this seems so far afield from what the interview topic is, what's going to happen since COVID has occurred, there have been stimulus packages to the United States for U.S. citizens with an income, you know, under a certain level. Evictions have been... uh, halted in in many many i think across the united states at the end of january there's likely to be another extension when our new president takes over but ultimately there's going to be an end point where many people will go into the court system to be evicted the only way that those people can have housing is through governmental tiny house you know, villages, community living, those types of things. That's all underway across the United States right now. Many municipalities have already built the veterans, armed services, you know, tiny house villages. There are more going into place for low-income families who've been evicted in municipalities. So the demand on not individual builders, because probably those government contractors are in a different grouping, but your tiny house builder may come up against some obstacles because the demand for tiny house living is going to, uh, it's going to snowball as this year progresses. I think by June, manufacture of tiny houses may exceed mobile homes in general, just because that size of living is what the majority of the new people are going to need. And, you know, whether or not the market's going to keep up, I don't know. But if you're looking to enter into a building contract right now, it's good to have a talk with your builder, you know, that if there's a delay that, you know, after you've made a big payment, if there's a big delay, you have to talk about that because you need a commitment to finish that house, you know, your house. Whereas before that wasn't as big, big a concern, but right now, I think the demand is just going to go through the roof. Wow. So when I hear you say that, in my mind, I think that the 
what's going to get outstripped even faster than the demand for the houses themselves is the demand for where to put them. Exactly. Because it's already difficult to find a legal parking space for a tiny house in many places. Yeah. 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 Now, you got to look at it both ways. It is true. It's hard to find a place to, to put your tiny house. But if municipalities are opening up their tiny house villages to help deal with the eviction process, now they can't discriminate against another tiny house village in that same municipality because they've already approved one in that location. So it kind of has a boomerang effect. You know, if the, if the local government's doing, doing it for the, the needy and the low income, how can they say that the people who have a little bit higher income can't have a tiny house community in a similar location in that municipality? It's really, you know, the land values right now are exorbitant, but that discrimination factor is going to have to go away. You know, it can't just be this city on their own terms. Once you get a tiny house village in, in a town, very hard to say you can't have another tiny house village in that town. And not meaning that most tiny home owners want to live in a community, but I think it, it, for every negative, there's always a positive counter. It's just waiting, <laughs> you know, for that, for the positive one to percolate up. But I, I see the zoning issues to become really, really hard in a month or two. But then the, the, there'll be localities will be sued for discrimination and they will have no defense. You know, because once you put in your own tiny house village as a town or a city or a county, you can't say to a developer, whether they're local, out of state or out of country, you can't put in a tiny, another tiny house village here. That's that's blatant discrimination. Yeah. And that's where it, it seems like this has the potential to kind of break into the mainstream further than, mm -hmm. you know, manufactured homes, you know, RV parks, mobile home parks, which, which have a real stigma. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it seems that the tiny house, tiny houses are so similar in so many ways. And yet they're, it's, they're managing to kind of be considered by more people. Mm -hmm. the, the, the manufactured housing industry has become, uh, I mean, it has exploded as well. That's, that's the irony of all of this. Wow. You know, as, as the tiny house movement has been expanding, so has the manufactured housing because people can't live in the concrete mansions anymore. You know, first we had the mortgage foreclosure crisis that pushed a lot of people into manufactured housing. And the type of manufactured housing that exists now, it's hard to tell the difference between a site house, a site built house, and a manufactured home. Yeah. Just like a tiny house that's site built. Very, you can't distinguish that from a cottage or a bungalow, uh, you know, whatever word you want to call it. They all essentially look very similar. So as the tiny house movement has been expanding, all these pressures on everyone from a monetary perspective, the pandemic um, has made people think outside the box on, on all levels. So the people who are being foreclosed on or moving are, are the people who are 
now becoming the residents in the upper end manufactured home communities. The people who really gave up their homes but have income, they're now into the big RV into, you know, por portion of the, the public because they don't, they don't care. They just want to travel and have right. fun and they have the income to do it. Then you have the people who are downsizing because they know they need to look at their budget and they need to look at their income. Maybe they were a two-income family and now they're a one-income family because of COVID. So they're looking to have a mobile home or a tiny home on wheels so that they can go where the work is. You know, so it, it's kind of like a trickle down effect as the people, the mortgage foreclosure crisis pushed people into the manufactured housing industry. The COVID crisis has probably pushed people into the tiny house movement because, you know, two people, if you had two people as your income source and you had, now you have one, you know, it's, that's a huge 50% reduction in your income. So these are, it's weird, isn't it? Talking to a mobile home RV attorney who's who's a trial attorney and putting in perspective all these massive crises that are going on in the United States, but they all lead to to the tiny house movement, in my opinion. You know, because alternative dwelling units, I remember hearing Zach Giffen talk about that at the first convention I went to in 2017. It's like what it, I, I thought it was a word, you know, a, a Jew, you know, I thought it was some French term. <laughs> <laughs> and now every every county, every city just about has has an ADU ordinance. And, you know, those are the ones that are they're much more expensive. They have to look aesthetically like the house in front. But when you think about it, if, you know, you're a family of four, you had four kids in college and they can't go to college anymore and they can't get an income, those alternative dwelling units in the backyard are a nice way to keep you from killing your adult children because at least they're in the backyard where they can have their own space, you know, and not, not be in your house as adults. So it's, it's just weird. I, I've never seen so many big areas in law, in housing that are kind of communicating to really find solutions. It's usually, I come in because there are only problems. And in this, this time period, it's funny. I mean, I can use observations to help give people some things that can save them time and save them money. So, I want to talk about NDAs. And my question about them is, do you see any reason why somebody should sign an NDA as a, as a client of a builder or, you know, moving into a tiny house community. But before you answer that question, I was just hoping you could explain what an NDA is because, you know, not everybody even knows what, what that is. Well, to me, an NDA, like a non-disclosure agreement. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's an odd area to to be using that type of document honestly myself i don't quite understand the purpose of it or or what the goal is of using it i guess it would be if if i build a house for you i want you to to sign a non-disclosure agreement meaning you won't use my floor plan 
and give it to somebody else so that they could try to make a, a house that looks like the house that I have the plans to as the builder. But I mean, it, it's, it's just tough. And maybe there's an aspect I'm not getting. Well, what I've, what I've caught wind of and, and Frank, who I had on, on the show has kind of clued in on this too, is that, you know, certain builders are using NDAs and it's, it's basically helping them to silence people who have complaints or who have had bad experiences from talking about, okay. Hey, I worked with this builder and the house they delivered, you know, I had a terrible leak in the ceiling or the, you know, the electrical system failed after a month, those kinds of things. Yeah. uh, That's like a, uh, uh, confidentiality agreement, I guess, is is the generic term for that. Okay, it, it's it's an odd prospect to go into a build of a home where you would have a non a non disclosure term going into the prospect. Like I can't think of what the homeowner could ask in return that would be the equivalent. I mean, it's just, it's so huge. Yeah. It would be like, I guess you would, you would be able, like the only equivalent I could think of is if you don't want me to say anything disparaging against you, then you should give me a 20% discount. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Because really there is no quid pro quo there. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, most like the confidentiality agreement would also go with if, if the client who is contracting for the home can't make payment, then, you know, that builder can't, you know, use their name uh, in a negative fashion. But it's not like builders go to other people and talk about one person that they had a problem with. You right. know, it's, right. it's, it's, that's a difficult situation. Yeah, it's, it's not a, um, you know, I, I've, I've used confidentiality agreements in cases that have settled but not in cases from the inception. Mm-hmm. You know, it's after the fact where the right. non-disclosure happens, not before the fact. Right. And it, it makes you just feel a little uncomfortable. Yeah. It, it, it begs the question, how many people have, have had problems that you needed to put this in your contract in the first place? Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And I would say, I mean, if a builder tells you that they need that because their their design is so innovative that that they don't want you telling other people, you know, certain details about how it's built, I, I still would say, mm-hmm. you know, run. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. Or if, if they want to protect, you know, they're, they're, they can copyright their plans. You know, that's easy to do. Uh, you know, so there are ways to do it without binding that person. But you can say anything that you think is privileged about your design, I'm happy to sign a confidentiality agreement. But if you don't do the work right, I'm not happy to sign the agreement. That's apples and oranges. One is intellectual property. One is bad work. You know, they're they're kind of they're separate. Yeah. How, you know, how do you recommend dealing with, you know, builders or landlords who are dishonest? you know, and doesn't respond to requests for solving the issues in a civil way. You know, I, I've, I've heard of people, you know, there's Better Business Bureau. There's the option of just, you know, exposing them through social media. There's litigation. You know, 
if it gets to this point, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? You have to, you have to look at the consequences of your action. If what you're going to do puts you in the same place as the person you're having the problem with, it's never usually a good solution because if someone has, what do you mean by that? Uh, if someone has done you wrong and you decide to go on social media and make their life a living hell, what do you accomplish? I mean, right. what do you really accomplish? Right. What you want is satisfaction or some type of payment back or a response mm-hmm. or or them stopping something. So, you know, the tit for tat on social media, mm-hmm. I, that worries me because that's when emotion enters into the equation and that's when people become rabid at each other and it just because it, it it takes on a life of its own it's almost better to do a small claim action if you really have been hurt financially and you believe it needs to be addressed you can go to the clerk of the court anywhere in the united states i'm sure get a form to sue somebody and you can put down i had a contract they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and I was damaged for X number of dollars. And that's a lawsuit. That's it. So it's better to deal with it head on than to do all this warfare stuff. Right. I've, I've seen that end horribly. Yeah. In, in, in recent months, you know, where people get so pent up that real hostility happens. And, um, you know, you think it, you think you're, you're, you're on the right path doing the social media component until somebody takes it very seriously. Right. Uh, whatever could you be talking about in, in the news right now? Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm the prophet. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, so I wonder, like, I, I, I agree with you that the social media flame war is bad, but, but one could say, well, I want to, you know, this builder is still operating out there and I, you know, I want to warn people from, you know, I want to prevent other people from, from kind of having this bad experience. I think that's where the better business bureau, the attorney general of the state that you you're in, they, they are over consumer fraud. You know, if you really think that you have a situation where, you know, fraud is is part of the problem Mm -hmm. you there's an online form for the attorney general to fill out what has happened it would not i mean that's a public document where you're putting Mm -hmm. that online to the attorney general yep instead of you know doing the photo and this guy's a criminal and he didn't do me right on social media you can say if you have a problem with this guy like this vendor or this contractor I contacted this number. I filled out this complaint. If the same thing happens to you, you know, I'm just trying to make sure you're taken care of and you can deal with it yourself. You know, there's ways of putting it out there on social media where it's helpful to others and not targeted to, you know, be, you know, in your face, personal to the other one, to to the person you have the problem with. So that, that may be an alternative, you know, posting the attorney general's website or the better business bureau website got it along with you know i i i did have a problem with this person and if you do here's what i did got it so kind of down a notch less less emotional but more just factual i have filed a complaint with my attorney general about this experience 
Here you go. Yeah. And or you can post an article in the newspaper too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because usually if there is is a, a bad actor, there's some kind of media component where you aren't the you aren't the media component, but you can pass on the newspaper report, right, you know, right. or, or the article. So you've um you've said kind of that contracts, if they're 20 pages long for a lease that that seems kind of suspect but that also you know you need to spell things out so that mm-hmm. you know there aren't questions or things left up to uh up to guessing so like how detailed should contracts be i mean like i know i don't know quite what answer i'm mm-hmm. expecting but like how yeah. how do you know what a good level of detail is I think you, you, sh- you as the person who is going to rent the spot or the site should know how much you have to pay, how much, whether utilities are part of rent, if there's a late fee, if there's an extra person fee, if there's a fee for animals, if there's a fee for animal pickup, if you have to pay for lawn care. Mm-hmm. So probably a long list of charges. If, if you have uh uh, are you charged extra if you have a shed that you want to put down? Uh, is there a storage area in the community if you have an extra vehicle? You know, a lot of places, how many vehicles can be parked at a site at a time? Some some communities or, or campgrounds, it's one vehicle, which is your house, and then your other vehicle has to park someplace else. Is there parking payments required for that additional vehicle? Um, is there an on-site manager in, in the community? What do you do after hours? Those are more outside the lease, kind of in the reservation type of information. But you always want to know if something happens at night, what, what do you do? You know, no. with their hookup, with yeah. their water line, with their gas line. Do you have to pay for propane? Is that included? You know, find out all those things should be spelled out. Then what are the penalties? If you're late on payment, what are the termination requirements? How, how much time, if any, do they have to give you before you have to vacate? Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to think what else. I think that pretty much covers it. All right. It's more all those, those things about charges and services. Um, you know, a lot of people move in and they think everything's included in rent and then the bill comes and it's like, yeah, you paid two fifty in rent and then all the other charges are another $300 because they're one by one by one by. Yeah. So that's what you want to find out. And really, it sounds like that would take a lot of paper, but I, I would say that 20 pages to me is excessive. 10 pages may still a little long. But like seven to eight pages is pretty much the standard lease. And that's only because there's so many little, little fees. Usually yeah. that take up a page or two. Um, well, I, I really appreciate your time today. I don't want to, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Although I, I could definitely hear you talk about this for hours. <laughs> this is a really great question that came in through Tiny House Engage, which is my online community. Mm-hmm. The question is, 
I'd be interested if Jody has any advice on the mindset one should bring to the topic of housing laws. For me, it feels like a pretty negative topic dealing with laws and regulations in general, but I notice that there are people, lawyers, who actually like these things. So it would be great to hear a bit about that and to be encouraged to change my perspective. Honestly, uh, most like the federal housing laws, there is, uh, you know, 55 plus age, uh, age communities where um, you are allowed to discriminate on the basis of age and have a retirement community, although that word is not used anymore. Also, landlord tenant laws allow in those communities an underage person if they're going to operate as a caregiver, which has happened quite a bit. And then there are communities that have no pet rules and the assistance animals and the service animals are exceptions to those rules. All of those statutes were developed with the individual resident in mind. So there is a whole host of laws that protect people in housing situations that give you rights, whereas before it was unclear. So. Although it's a negative topic and it seems like the landlord always calls the shots, it's not so. Most of the federal lawsuits are against the landowners for failure to comply with those statutes that provide rights to have the underage caregiver, to have the assistance animal, the service animal, you know, things like that. Or if you have a disability and the community doesn't hasn't followed the requirements for public access that's another you know more resident minded statute but just know anytime somebody's renting their land to you or a spot to you or a house to you they're always going to have the upper hand because they are the owner and it's just like the car dealership buying the car you're never going to find that free car ever so <laughs> just accept that yeah <laughs> and then try to look at it with your own protection in mind. Nice. Well, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is, do you have any, you know, recommended resources for kind of further reading or learning on these topics? I think for like the the person who asked about federal housing laws and, um, you know, having the negative connotation with it, just just look up resident rights. Just Google that in the state that you're in and on a federal perspective. You'll, it, you will be surprised at what you will find. And I think once you see that as, as a renter or as even as an owner of a home, though, that's going to sit on a site or someone else's property, that you do have inherent rights, you, you feel a little more empowered because you don't think any of that exists. You just think you're you're going from where you live now and you're going to be totally subjected to the will and the whim of whoever owns that land. And they do have restrictions that control what they can and what they cannot do to you. Excellent. Well, Jody Gable, um, I will post a link to um, your website and um, in the show notes for this episode. But in case anybody's listening and they live in Florida and they, they want to get in touch with you, where, how can they find you? They can find me. I'm, I am on LinkedIn and um, I, I 
gave you my email address, you're yep. free to, to publish that. That's fine. Okay. And either either one of those, I you know, I'm pretty I'm responsive, you know, always looking at emails and contact information. So awesome. All right. Well, Jody Gable, thank you so, so much for this interview. It was really great to meet you. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much to Jody Gable for being a guest on the show. You can find the show notes from today's episode, including a full transcript and links and contact information for Jody Gable at thetinyhouse.net slash 150. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 150. Thank you so much to our sponsor this week, Precision Temp. Don't forget to use the coupon code THLP for $100 off and free shipping on your order. All right, that is all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.